Section 33 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 12. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 12. Section 33, Alexander Dumont, Jr., 1824 to 1895, by Francisca Sasse. We shall not say much about the life of Alexander Dumont the Younger. The history of a great writer is the history of his works. He was born in Paris on July 27, 1824. His name on the register of births appears as Alexandre, son of Marie-Catherine Levet, seamstress. He was not acknowledged by his father until he had reached his sixth year, March 7, 1830. I emphasize this particularly because it had a great influence on the bent of his genius. During all his life, Dumont was haunted by a desire of rehabilitating illegitimate children, of creating a reaction against their treatment by the civil code and the prejudice which makes of them something little better than outcasts in society. When I was seven years old, he himself says, I entered as a boarder the school of Monsieur Vatier, on Rue Montaigne saint Genevieve. Hence I passed, about two years later, to the saint Victor school. The principal was Monsieur Gabot, a friend of my father, with whom he collaborated under the nom de plume of Dinu. This school, which numbered 250 boarding pupils, and with the rather strange habits which I tried to depict in the Clemenceau case, occupied all the ground covered today by the Casino de Paris, and the Paul Nord establishment. When about fifteen, I left St. Victor's School for Monsieur Hennon's school, which was situated in the Rue de Courcelles and has now disappeared. It is in the College Bourbon, now the Lycée Courcelles, that I received all my instruction, as the pupils of the two schools where I lived attended the college classes. I never belonged to any of the higher state schools. I have not even the degree of bachelor. At the end of his years of study, he returned to his father. He did not stay there more than six months. A rather tumultuous life which he saw in the house disturbed his proud mind, already filled with serious yearnings. You have debts, his father said to him. Do as I do, work, and you will pay them. Such was indeed the young man's intentions. His first work was a one-act play in verse, The Queen's Duel, which no one, assuredly, would mention today but for his signature. The date was 1845, and the author was then 21. Other works by him were published at various times in the Journal de Demoiselles. I was, he has said, the careless, lazy, and spoiled child of all my father's friends. I believed in the eternity of youth, of strength, of joy. I spent the whole day laughing, the whole night sleeping, unless I had some reason for writing verses. About 1846 he set resolutely to work. He turned to novel writing, which seemed to him to offer greater facilities for reaching the public and greater chances of immediate income than dramatic composition. Only two of his novels have survived, La Dame aux Camillas, Camille, 1848, because from this book came the immortal drama by the same title, and The Clemenceau Case, because the author wrote it when he was in complete possession of his talent, and because, moreover, it is a first-rate work. 
It was in 1852 that the Baudville Theatre gave the first performance of Camille, the fortune of which was to be so extraordinary. For two or three years the play had been tossed from theatre to theatre. Nobody wanted it. To the ideas of the time it seemed simply shocking, and the play was still forbidden in London after its performances in France were numbered by the hundreds. There is this special trait in Camille. It was a work all instinct with a spirit of youth. Dumont, twenty years later, sadly said, I might perhaps make another demi-monde. I could not make another Camille. There existed, indeed, other works which have all the fire and charm of the twentieth year. Paulusset is Corneille's masterpiece. His Cid breathes the spirit of youth. Corneille at forty could not have written the Cid. Racine's first play is Andromaque. Beaumarchais is The Barber of Seville. Rossini, when young, enlivened it with his light and sparkling airs. Fifteen years later, he himself wrote his William Tell, a higher work, but a work which was not young. If the theatrical managers had recoiled from Camille in spite of the great names that recommended it, it is because it was cut after a pattern to which neither they nor the public were accustomed. It is because it contained the germ of a whole dramatic revolution. Now, the author was not a theatrical revolutionist. He had not said to himself, I am going to throw down the old fabric of the drama and erect a new one on its ruins. To tell the truth, he had no idea of what he was doing. He had witnessed a love drama. He had thrown it still throbbing upon the stage without any regard for the dramatic conventions which were then imposed upon playwrights and which were almost accepted as laws. He had simply depicted what he had seen. All the managers, attached as they were to the old customs and respectable of the traditions, had trembled with horror when they saw, moving around Camille, the ignoble prudence, the idiotic du de Vardemille, the silly saint Gaudon. But the public, though the fact was suspected neither by them nor by the public itself, yearned for more truth upon the boards. When Camille was presented to them, the playgoers uttered a cry of astonishment and joy. That was the thing. That was just what they wanted. From that day, which will remain as a date in the history of the French stage, the part of Camille has been performed by all the celebrated actresses. The part has two sides. One may see in it a degraded woman who has fallen profoundly in love, rather late in life. One may also see in it a woman, already poetical in her own nature, suddenly carried away by a great passion into the sacred regions of the ideal. Almost any young man in Dumas' place would have lost his head after so astounding a success and might not have resisted the temptation of at once working out the vein. For on coming out of the theatre after the first performance, the author had all the managers at his feet, and the smallest trifle was sure to be accepted if only it had his signature. But he had learned, by the side of a prodigal father, the art of husbanding his talent. He declined to front the footlights again, save with the work upon which he had been able to bestow all the care and labor it deserved. He waited a year before he gave, at the gymnase theatre, Diane de Lys. Diane de Lys undoubtedly pleased the public, but its success was not exactly brilliant. It is full of great qualities, it is strongly conceived, constructed with rare power and logic, but it added nothing to his reputation. The play as a whole seemed long and melancholy. It is a curious subject for a critical study, as one of the stages in which the genius of the author stopped a while, on its way to higher works. It will leave no great trace in his career. Two years later he gave at the Dunay's Theatre, I do not dare to say his masterpiece, but certainly the best orchestrated and most enjoyable play he ever wrote, Le Demi-Monde, 
the other half-world. In this play, he discovered and defined the very peculiar world of those women who live on the margin of regular society, and try to preserve its tone and demeanor. What scientific and strong construction are here! What an admirable disposition of the scenes, both flexible and logical! And, through the action, which moves on with wonderful straightforwardness and breadth, how many portraits, drawn with a steady hand, each one bearing such distinctive features that you would know them if you met them upon the street. Olivier de Jalin, the refined Parisian, the dialectician of the play, who was no other than Dumont himself. Raymond de Narjac, handsome and honest, but not keen or Parisian. And that giddy Valentine Saint-Soctus, whose head turns with the wind, whose tongue cannot rest one moment. And especially, Suzanne d'Ange, so witty, so complex, so devious in her motions, so rabolade, as a Parisian of today would say. Between the demi-monde and la question d'argent, the money question, which followed, Dumont spent two years at work. La question d'argent is a favorite play with the connoisseurs, but its reception by the public was of the coldest. It is a noteworthy fact that plays turning upon money have never been successful. Le Sages d'Encarat is a dramatic masterpiece, it never had the luck to please the crowd. Dumas Jean Gerard is, however, a very curiously studied character. The author has represented in him the commonest type of the shady money man, the unconscious rascal, and very skillfully he has made an individual out of that general type, by giving to Jean Gerard a certain rough good nature, the appearance of a good fellow, with a certain degree of fineness, a mixture of humility and self-conceit, of awkwardness and impudence, and even some ideas as to the power of money that do not lack dignity, and some real liberality of sentiment and act. For wealth alone, though acquired by ignominious means, suggests and dictates to the great robbers some advantageous movements which the small rascal cannot indulge in. And around this, to Corat of the Second Empire, how many pictures of honest people, every one of whom, in his or her way, is good and fine. One year later, Dumont carried to the gymnase, his favorite theater, La Fille's Naturelle, the natural son, and the next year, Un Père Prodigal, a prodigal father, also known in English through a free adaptation as My Awful Dad. In La Fille Naturelle, Dumont for the first time wrote a theme play, a kind of work in which he was to become a master. Hitherto we have seen him drawing pictures of manners. To be sure, philosophical considerations on the period depicted are not wanting, but the play has not the form and does not assume the movement of a thesis. It does not take up one special trait of our social order, one of our worldly prejudices, in order to show its strong and weak sides. Le Fille Naturelle is the work of a moralist as well as of a playwright, or, rather, it is the work of a playwright who was born a moralist. Un père prodigue originally excited great curiosity. It escaped no one that in his Count Ferdinand de la Rivionniere, Dumont had shown us some traits of his illustrious father, who had been a prodigal father, and that he had depicted himself in Vicomte André. Everyone made comparisons. Some, of course, accused the author of filial disrespect. The accusation was ridiculous, and he did not even answer it. He had so well disguised the persons, he had transported them into such different surroundings, that no one could recognize in them their true prototypes. Then, and this is no small praise, if Count de la Rivionniere is guilty of one fault, that of throwing to the wind his fortune, he is a most amiable nobleman, full of broad ideas and generous sentiments, has a warm heart. 
The fourth act, in which the father sacrifices himself in order to save his son's life, is pathetic in the extreme. But nothing equals the first act, which is a model of animated and picturesque composition. No one ever painted in more vivid colors the pillage of a household, and a family without so much as a shadow of discipline. It is an accumulation of small details, not one of which is an indifferent nature, and which, taken together, drive into our minds the idea that this nobleman, so well-mannered, so charming in conversation, so sober for himself, is running to ruin as gaily as he can. For four years after the production of Un Père Prodigue, Dumont wrote nothing, but in 1864 he reappeared at the gymnase with a strange play, La Mie de Femmes, a friend of the sex, which completely failed. After La Mie de Femmes there was another interruption, not of Dumont's labors, but of his dramatic production. Perhaps he was sick of an art which had caused him a cruel disappointment. He turned again to novel writing, and published, 1866, La Faire Clemenceau, the Clemenceau case, the success of which was not as great as he had hoped. In France, when a man is superior in one speciality, people will not let him leave it. He is not allowed to be at once an unequaled novelist and a first-rate dramatist. At that time, Dumas hesitated which road to follow. An incident which created a great deal of comment threw him back toward the stage, and toward a new form of comedy. Monsieur Emile de Girardin, one of the best-known publicists of the Second Empire, had bethought himself, when over fifty years of age, and knowing nothing of this kind of work, to write a play. He had been a great friend of Dumont Père, and had kept up the most affectionate intercourse with his son. He had asked him to fit his play for the stage. It possessed really one dramatic idea. Dumont, in order to oblige his father's friend, made out of it La Supplice d'Aufemme, a woman's torture. Emile de Gerardin, who was self-conceited and somewhat despotic, refused to recognize his offspring in the bear that Dumont had licked. He declined to sign the play. Neither will I, Dumont retorted. A woman's torture was acted at the Comédie Française with extraordinary success. This success was, for Dumont, a warning and a lesson. A woman's torture was a three-act play, short, concise, panting, which hurried to the coup de théâtre of the second act, upon which the drama revolved and rushed to its conclusion. The time of five-act comedies, with ample expositions, copious developments, philosophical disquisitions, curious and fanciful episodes, was gone. Henceforth, the dramatist had to deal with a hurried and blasé public, which, taking dinner at eight, could give to the theatre but a short time, and an attention disturbed by the labor of digestion. A woman's torture, which lasted only an hour and a half, and proceeded only by rapid strokes, was exactly what the public wanted. After that time, Dumont wrote only three acts and one act plays, using four acts only for Les Ideas de Madame Aubray, Madame Aubray's ideas, and these four acts are very short. In 1867, this play announced Dumont's return to the stage, and Dumont is here more paradoxical than he had ever been. His theme looked like a wager, not simply against bourgeois prejudices, but even against good sense, and, I dare to say, against justice. This wager was won by Dumont, thanks to an incredible display of skill. He took up the thesis a second time in Denise, and won his wager again, but with less difficulty. In Denise, the lover struggles only against social prejudices, and allows himself to be carried away by one of those emotional fits which disturb and confound human reason. In Madame Aubray's ideas, the triumph is one of pure logic. Un visite noc, a wedding call, and La Princesse Georges, 
followed rather closely on Madame Aupre's ideas. A wedding call? What a thunderbolt, then! It was of but one act, but one act, the effect of which was prodigious, the echo of which is still heard. Time and familiarity have now softened for us the two sharp outlines of this bitter play. It has been acknowledged a masterpiece. It is certainly one of the boldest works of this extraordinary magician, who, thanks to his unerring skill and to the dazzling wit of his dialogue, brought the public to listen to whatever he chose to put upon the stage. It seemed that, like a lion tamer in the arena, Dumont took pleasure in belaboring and exasperating this many-headed monster, in order to prove to his own satisfaction that he could subdue its revolts. La Princesse Georges is a work of violent and furious passion. We find in it Madame de Terremonde, the good woman who adores her husband, but who adores him with fury, who wants him all to herself, and who, when sure that she is betrayed, passes from the most exasperated rage to tears and despair. There is in the first act a scene of exposition which has become celebrated. No one ever so rapidly mastered the public. No one ever from the first stroke so painfully twisted the hearts of the spectators. Let us pass rapidly over La Femme de Claude, Claude's wife, 1873. Of all his plays, it is the one Dumont said he liked best, the one he most passionately defended with all sorts of commentaries, letters, prefaces, etc., the one which he insisted on having revived a long time after it had failed. To my mind, that play was a mistake, and the public, in spite of Dumont's arguments, in spite of the protests of the critics, who were often very glad to distinguish themselves by not yielding to the common voice, the public insisted on agreeing with me. Only a few months later, Dumont brilliantly retrieved himself with Monsieur Alphonse, his Madame Guicard is the most cheerfully vulgar type of the parvenu which anyone ever dared to put on the stage. She can hardly read and write. She is no longer young, and she is, to boot, very proud of her money. She has no tact and no taste, but at heart she is a good sort of woman. Her morality is as primitive as her education. But deceit disgusts her. She hates but one thing, she says, lying. She is not troubled by conventionalities. Her speech has all the color and energy of popular speech. But see, Dumont, in depicting this woman, preserved exquisite measure. Madame Gucard says many pert and droll things. She never utters a coarse word. Her language is picturesque. It is free from slang. Hers is a vulgar nature, but she does not offend delicate ears by the grossness of her utterance. Dumont never drew a more living picture. She is the joy of this rather sad play. All that remain to be reviewed are L'Etranger, La Princesse de Bagdad, and Fonsilion, all of which were given at the Comédie Française. L'Etranger is indeed a melodrama, with an admixture of comedy. Had he gone further in that direction, Dumont might have made a new sort of play, which would perhaps have reigned a long time on the stage. But after this trial, successful though it was, he stopped. La Princesse de Bagdad entirely failed. Francillon was Dumont's last success at the Comédie Française. After 1887, Dumont gave nothing to the stage. He had completed a great five-act play, The Road to Thebes, which the manager of the Comédie Française hoped every year to put on the boards. Dumont kept promising it, but either from distrust of himself or of the public, or from fatigue or fear of meeting with failure, he asked for new delays, when he declared that not only the play would not be acted during his life, but that he would not even allow it to be acted after his death. This death he saw coming, with sad but calm eyes. It was a sorrow for us to see this man, whom we had known so quick and alert, grow weaker every day, 
showing the progress of disease in his shriveled features and body. The complexion had lost all color, the cheeks had become flaccid, the eye had no life left. On October the 1st, 1895, he wrote to his friend Jules Clarete, Do not depend upon me any more. I am vanquished. There are moments when I mourn my loss, as Madame Hosant said when dying. He was at Puz, by the seaside, when he wrote to that despairing letter. He returned to Marley, there to die, surrounded by his family on November 28, 1895, in a house which he loved and which had been bequeathed to him years before by an intimate friend. His loss threw into mourning the world of letters and the whole of Paris. People discovered then, for death loosens every tongue and every pen, how kind and generous in reality was Dumont, who had often been accused of avarice by those who contrasted him with his father, how many services he had discreetly rendered, how open his hand always was. His constant cheerfulness and good nature had finally caused him to be forgiven for his wit, which was sarcastic and cutting, and for his success, which had thrown so many rivals into the shade. This witty man, who was always obliging and even tender-hearted, had no envy, and gave his applause without a shadow of reserve to the successes of others. Every young author found in him advice and support. He did not expect gratitude, and therefore was soured by no disappointment. He was a good man, partly from nature, partly from determination, for he deemed that, after all, the best way to live happy in this world is to make happy as many people as possible. If in this long essay I have not spoken of Dumont as a moralist, it is because, in my opinion, in spite of all that has been said, Dumont was a dramatist a great deal more than a philosopher. In his comedies, he discussed a great many moral and social questions, without giving a solution for any, or rather the solutions which he gave were due not to any set of fixed principles, but to the conclusion which he was preparing for this play or that. He said, indifferently, kill her, or forgive her, according to the requirements of the subject which he had selected and he would afterwards write a sensational preface with a view to demonstrate that the solution this time given by him was the only legitimate one. These prefaces are very amusing reading, for he wrote them with all the fire of his nature, and he had the gift of movement. But they were a strange medley of incongruous and contradictory statements. Every idea that he expresses can be grasped and understood, but it is impossible to see how it agrees with those that precede and follow. It is a chaos of clear ideas. Dumont was not a philosopher, but an agitator. He stirred up a great many questions. He drew upon them our distracted attention. He compelled us to think of them. Therein he did his duty as a dramatist. He gave much thought to the fate of women in our civilization. We may say, however, that though loving her much, he still more feared her, and I shall even add, despised her. All his characters who have the mission of defending morality and good sense are very attentive to her, but keep her at arm's length. They are affectionate counselors, not lovers. They hold her to be a frail being who must be controlled and guided. Someone has said that there was in Dumont something of the Catholic priest. It is true. He was to woman a lay director of conscience. He was a great connoisseur of pictures and a great art lover. Music, I think, is the only art that did not affect him much. He was a dazzling talker. His plays teem with bright sayings, his conversation sparkled with him. I did not know him in his prime, when he delighted his friends and companions by his unceasing flow of spirits. I became intimate with him only later. If you knew how to start him, he simply coruscated. I never knew anyone save Edmund About, who was as witty, and who, like About, 
always paid you back in good-sounding coin. Dumas was a member of the French Academy. He had not wished for that honor, because it had been denied to his father. He desired, in his reception speech, to call up the great spirit of this illustrious father, and make it share his academician's chair. He had this joy. The two Dumas were received on the same day. Their two names will never perish. Francisca Sarce. The editors have been compelled, for lack of space, to leave out that part of Monsieur Sasset's valuable essay, which is a professional analysis of several of Dumont's plays, and which would be of interest, chiefly, to special students of the French drama and stage. End of section 33. Recording by Todd.